from ARUP Laboratories on the campus of the University of Utah. Welcome to the LabMind podcast, where we discuss the future of diagnostic laboratory testing. I'm Dr. Brian Jackson. Hello, today is Thursday, June 11th, 2020. Today we're recording another installment in our special COVID-19 series on LabMind. And today we're going to be talking about the pandemic's impact on doctors and patients on the front line. And not just patients with COVID-19, but this disease is affecting a lot of people with chronic diseases and other medical needs. And we need to think about those things as well. I'd like to provide just a little bit of context to put us into the right historical frame in this fast-moving pandemic. We're now in the second week of June, about three months out from when testing first became available, and about three months out from when we started seeing these huge outbreaks in places like New York and New Orleans. So three months later now today, the U.S. seems to be split between two types of places. On one hand, there are the places like New York and Boston and Washington State where they had big outbreaks, but now things are really easing off. And then there's other parts of the country like, say, Utah, where we are, where we didn't have that big initial outbreak, but things seem to be creeping up, which is a little bit worrisome. And we'll have to see how that plays out. My guest on the podcast today is Dr. Tracy Freck. She is a rheumatologist in clinical practice here at the University of Utah. Dr. Freck received her medical degree at Eastern Virginia Medical School, then completed residency in internal medicine and a fellowship in rheumatology at the University of Utah. Along the way, she completed a master's degree in clinical investigation. She's currently Associate Professor of Internal Medicine at the University of Utah, where she also directs the Systemic Sclerosis Clinic and is the Director of Clinical Trials for the Division of Rheumatology. So Dr. Freck, welcome to the LabMind podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So to start off, maybe you could tell us a little bit about the patients that you see. And maybe we should focus on systemic sclerosis because that's one of your specialty areas. I'm guessing most listeners, if they've heard of systemic sclerosis, may not know a lot about it. Maybe some listeners may not even be familiar what this is. So maybe you could just tell us a little bit about the disease and what it's like in sort of real life living with this condition. Absolutely. So systemic sclerosis, which is also known as scleroderma, is an autoimmune disease that's characterized by progressive vascular change. And what the blood vessels do is communicate to the connective tissue to lay down scar tissue. And this commonly presents in the skin and is seen on clinical exam as a thickening of the skin progressively from the fingertips up into the arms and up to the legs, abdomen and chest can be involved. But as the disease progresses, it progresses at different rates in different patients. And so really fundamentally, there's this vascular damage that in clinic we're trying to assess and see where that's at. And that can have complications like digital ulcers or sores or thickening or scarring, which can occur, as we mentioned, in the skin, but also in the lungs, in the kidneys, in the gastrointestinal tract. And so it's a complicated and complex disease in the sense that every patient has a different amount of vascular damage, of scarring damage, and inflammation. So I I didn't mention this to you ahead of time, but I actually had an aunt who died of this disease, but I never met her because it was back around the time I was born. I don't remember the exact date, but probably around 1970-ish. And back then, I don't think there were a lot of treatments. I think she had a pretty rapidly fatal course of developing the disease and dying and leaving a young family behind. And it was really a socially traumatic kind of a thing. It sounds like today the treatments evolved a lot, and this is more of a long-term chronic condition. 
And you're absolutely right. In fact, that's a really good point. There are patients who have lived with disease who had a less progressive course. Actually, if they were diagnosed in the 1980s and 90s, sometimes they don't come back to clinic because the clinical practice many years ago was just observation. We didn't have effective therapeutics. And that's because we borrowed upon the treatments that were used um, for other autoimmune diseases and they didn't seem to work. And today, the reason the disease is better managed is we have an understanding of the progressive nature of the blood vessel damage. So a lot of therapeutics targeting the blood vessels work better. We get those started earlier. Additionally, there's new mechanisms that we're trying to understand better, such as the endocannabinoid system and new receptors and modalities that we're targeting to try to interrupt the crosstalk between blood vessels and fibrosis. So it is a better diagnosis nowadays than it was in the past because we do a better job of comprehensive management. But it also highlights the challenge of not just thinking of this disease as a fibrotic or a damaged disease, instead thinking about how can we interrupt that blood vessel damage early so we have better outcomes. A lot more therapeutic options are in the discovery phase. And there's no cure per se, correct? This is something to be managed long-term, but it's not like there's a drug that can just make it go away. Absolutely. But we did in this past year get our first FDA-approved drug for interstitial lung disease, specifically for systemic sclerosis. So we really are moving out of that or trying to use repurposing of drugs and just hoping they work to a really targeted approach in clinical trials. Our hope, of course, is that one day we'll see a cure, which really highlights the importance of the clinician partnering with laboratory-based scientists so we understand the progression. And we definitely want to get into that in a few minutes. Since this is a laboratory podcast, maybe you just describe a little bit, do these patients have ongoing laboratory monitoring? What's sort of the diagnostic and monitoring experience for these patients? Fantastic question, because the reason systemic sclerosis is managed by a rheumatologist is part of the classification criteria require scleroderma-specific autoantibodies. And there's very few labs actually in the nation that do this right. (laughs) AREP has been highlighted as a great laboratory uh, nationally to send your patient's blood work to to confirm autoantibodies. Those autoantibodies include anti-topoist isomerase, RNA polymerase 3, and a centromere antibody. And so diagnostically, it's critical to have laboratories done at a credible laboratory to make the diagnosis. After a patient is diagnosed, the key is to follow blood count and kidney function, particularly in patients with an RNA polymerase 3 or topoisomerase antibody, because they're at high risk for scleroderma renal crisis. For additional monitoring, uh, if patients are on uh, immunosuppressants, the blood count becomes particularly, of course, important for ensuring that we're not inducing bone marrow suppression or that there's concern for infection. They don't have an elevated white count that we don't understand. Additionally, that blood count, while it's a simple test, is important because our patients, as we talked about, have multi-organ involvement. A patient that drops their hematocrit suddenly or even slowly over a period of time are at risk for bleeding from the antrum of their stomach, and those patients need mandatorily to be referred for endoscopy. And so that's another aspect of the CBC we're looking closely at. Scleroderma mimics are important to consider, and those include assessing for thyroid disease or looking for abnormalities on protein electrophoresis. And so those are commonly laboratories that are sent in patients that have changes in their skin, particularly if it's not following that classic pattern of evolving from the fingertips upwards toward the central core. 
Lastly, our patients are monitored with a urine analysis, particularly if they have an overlap with lupus or there's concern for involvement of their kidneys. So those are sort of the standard labs that are followed anywhere from every two to every six months uh, for routine monitoring on immunosuppression or for natural history. So let's transition into COVID because that's really the context that is, is overwhelming all of us right now. A while ago, you did a webcast that I watched the recording online. If I remember correctly, it was specifically for patients with systemic sclerosis and how they could deal with COVID-19, sort of what this viral pandemic meant for these patients who already have enough medical complexity in their lives. They really don't need this extra viral issue to be coming along, but I guess we don't have a choice there. So could you just talk a little bit about what's it like for for your patients with these chronic diseases and the you know the drugs that they're on and their immune systems and everything else when this pandemic hit? It affects everyone, but it must affect these patients in particularly challenging ways. Oh, absolutely. And that podcast was a joint sponsorship. Actually, I think it was the first one ever between the Scleroderma Research Foundation and the Scleroderma Foundation to really come together and support patients with evidence-based recommendations. And that was really maybe the second week of COVID. So we didn't have really any good evidence-based recommendations for our patients besides what was being recommended by the CDC was really social isolation to reduce transmission. And as part of that talk, we opened it up for questions and we talked with patients from around the United States on how this was affecting them. Additionally, patients could contact me afterwards. And what I was really impressed with is as how um, it is really actually just like you stated, how this already on a diagnosis that we're following very closely for progressive nature and the risk factors that come with being on immunosuppression, we've now added a horribly infectious disease that we were seeing bad outcomes with. And what patients really wanted to know is, what do I do with my immunosuppression? Do I just stop it? And then I'm at risk of progressive interstitial lung disease and progressive skin disease because I'm, I'm worried about this risk of these immunosuppressive medications. Or do I continue and just do my very best job of social isolation and hand washing? And really, as a community, we felt that the best recommendation, of course, is to, to get more data, but to have our patients continue medications for their underlying disease and then follow them very closely and ensure that they have a way to communicate with us if they were infected, how to stop that immunosuppression. And what really impressed me the most were patients that this just became devastating for their support system. So patients particularly had a spouse or family members working outside the house were really isolating themselves in in a different part of the house because they were so terrified of getting the infection. They have real life needs for having family members and having to be outside the home. So it, it was really the, the social isolation that to me was the most striking alongside the fear that everyone else was experiencing. So I think that's a unique aspect to the autoimmune disease population with those commercials that said, if you have an autoimmune disease or you're on immunosuppression, you need to socially isolate. That has a lot of mental health implications that we need to be sensitive to when we make recommendations. Yeah, that definitely seems to be one of the largest, most insidious aspects of this pandemic, the secondary effects of the isolation. Hard enough to go through a crisis, but with most crises, if it's an earthquake or a hurricane or whatever, we use social contact to help compensate and to cope and to move on. But that's a really hard one with this disease. 
Absolutely. And another aspect, of course, is our patients were, many of our patients are on Plaquenil. So to be told that you have this disease that you need to be isolated and make sure that you're really following the best expert recommendations, and then to not be able to get the medication that experts recommend that you're supposed to be on after many years on a drug was another unique aspect to the patient's experience. And so suddenly they had to do prior authorizations for Plaquenil. That was a big deal because they felt like they were getting sort of mixed messages from experts, you know, you're at high risk, but then we're also not going to allow you to have the medication that we think may help you. That also was very hard on a lot of our patients. I need to back up just a touch because some of the listeners being non-clinicians may be unfamiliar with the trade name Plaquenil, but what's the more common term for that drug? So this is the hydroxychloroquine. And so it's used by clinicians in autoimmune diseases because it's thought to change the pH of a lysosome and help with overall modulation of inflammation in autoimmunity. And so it originally was used in lupus. It's an anti-malarial drug and patients with lupus who were being treated with this drug were found to have less severe clinical symptoms. So that translated to other autoimmune diseases where there's an autoantibody and there's thought that cellular turnover may be propagating disease. There was thought process, particularly in patients with a row antibody or SSA, those patients may benefit from being on on Plaquenil. So it's a very commonly used drug in autoimmune disease. And there was some data that suggested that Plaquenil prevented COVID entered a cell. And so hydroxychloroquine or Plaquenil was was touted as, as this is a drug we really should explore for patients that are infected with COVID. What happened then is when patients went to go pick up their prescription, there became a very complex prior authorization process that would only give them 30 days of drugs. So it changed the cost of the drug for patients. And then they needed approval for why they were taking it. And that added an element of stress, of course, to patients when they called to get their refills. These mixed media messages and the hype and then how that played out in the pharmacies, this sounds like it was a really complicated situation for your patients. Absolutely. And so uh, as you can imagine, if you're a patient and you're at home and you're doing your best with social isolation and hand washing and you call in to get your prescription and then you're told that you cannot get it, patients were really very terrified and upset and felt that they really needed access to the medication to keep them safe. And that really was the impetus to this clinical trial that we decided we wanted to do to better understand how to guide medication recommendations during a pandemic. And we put this protocol together really quickly. I had great help with the scientists at AREP for us to say, how do we design a study that can be done during a pandemic to get us better information on patients and secure medications for them if this were to occur again? So let's talk about that study a bit. What was the clinical problem that you were looking to solve with the study? The main issue with immunosuppression, of course, is there's one thought process and you can say, well, we're using immunosuppression in autoimmune disease patients to suppress their cytokines. So they have inappropriate elevations of cytokines and that's what our our drugs are trying to do. Well, as we started seeing the sick COVID cases in the ICU, we felt that, that what was causing them to be so ill was a cytokine storm. And so the real question was, do we tell patients just hold all your medications and stay at home? And we're worried that if we don't give you your immunosuppression, your disease may progress. But really, the the concern is maybe you'll get sicker with, with COVID if you're on immunosuppression. Or are we instead seeing patients do better because their cytokines are controlled to some extent? So even if they had COVID, they would have a better outcome. 
because they're at less risk for a cytokine storm because we're using immunosuppressants. And in COVID cases, rheumatology was being consulted to get advice on how we suppress cytokine storms. So we're giving immunosuppression recommendations in sick COVID, but we're also trying to figure out how to do immunosuppression in patients with autoimmune disease that are yet to get COVID. So therein lies the, the can we make evidence-based guidelines by understanding what cytokines are doing naturally in these patients and then also, are there a subset of patients that actually um, were those asymptomatic patients with COVID? So are there autoimmune disease patients that had COVID, had mild symptoms, and actually recovered? We didn't know. And so the way we sort of thought through this is we're asking our patients on immunosuppression to go to the lab to get that CBC and CMP monitoring. Like we discussed earlier for when they're on immunosuppression, they're getting labs to ensure that they're safely tolerating this medication. At the same time, can we look at cytokines and serologies to just get a feel for what's happening in a pandemic with our autoimmune disease patients? And then, you know, really, as we talked about before, the goal would be, can we then have enough data to ensure that we secure the medications for the immune disease patients in the future, so they're not having to ever go through this prior author drug shortage experience again. So you're bringing up a really interesting biology story here. And I realize this is the world that you live in professionally every single day, but to a non-immunologist like me or a non-rheumatologist and non-immunologist, the simplistic view of the immune system is it's there to protect us against infections and you get a virus or a bacterium, the immune system ramps up kills off the infectious agent, then you're better and you're back to normal. Obviously, the world isn't quite that simple. And you spend your entire career dealing with the immune system not behaving the way you want it to. But that seems to be also the story with COVID, right? A lot of what's killing people in COVID disease is not just the virus directly, but also the immune response, right? Absolutely. So it sounds like COVID and rheumatology sort of have this big overlap, at least conceptually. Is that a fair way to think about it? Absolutely. And that's oftentimes how simplistically we'll explain when someone comes into clinic for their very first visit, we say, you know, your immune system is attacking self for no good reason. And so the medications we're using is trying to make the immune system back down to a normal level. So our medications are not trying to over-suppress. And again, that's important of lab monitoring. But what we're really trying to do is have your immune system make better decisions. And I think that's similar in the sick COVID is you want your immune system to be able to fight off COVID, but you also want that cytokine storm that's causing propagating inflammation and multi-organ dysfunction at a more acceptable level so you can fight off the infection but also preserve organs in a simplistic way. Thank you for simplifying it down because anytime we talk immunology, (laughs) we need to simplify it down to talk about it, it seems like. If I thought of your clinical study as being investigating something about how to fine-tune the immune response with drugs, is that a way to think about it? Absolutely. And I will point, we will likely not be powered for all the different combinations of immunosuppression that is used. So there's the variables of the underlying autoimmune disease, which the patient is having lab monitoring, what types of immunosuppression they're on. And then also looking at when they come for that lab draw, we ask them some simple questions. Do you think you have COVID currently? Do you think you had COVID? If you think you had COVID, what symptoms did you have? And were you tested for COVID? 
And then we will look at their cytokine profiles and their serologies in that context. So yes, ideally, we would have enough patients to be able to really come with some firm recommendations specific to different immunosuppressive regimens, but we're really looking at all comers. And again, with that really important question, autoimmune disease patients on immunosuppression, are they included in that asymptomatic carrier cohort? Because that we think as a society, we've said no that if you have an autoimmune disease, you will have severe symptoms. So even that piece of information provides some reassurance to patients if we can see that phenotype. I'm going to speculate for just a moment. So I'm not going to try and pin you down on a response to this, but even though your study is dealing with patients with autoimmune disease on immunosuppressants, it does make me wonder, given what we know about COVID pathophysiology, if some of the findings might be generalizable and if whatever you discover in this might be useful for broader knowledge of the disease in general, not just autoimmune patients. The whole concept of can we start using cytokine profiling and serology testing to really supplement our knowledge base on, on how the immune system is reacting to this virus. So let me ask you a question about sort of the process of setting up a clinical study like this. If you are a rheumatologist out in community practice in a standalone private practice, but not connected to an academic setting, not connected to a large clinical laboratory, would you be in as easy a position to pursue clinical studies like this? So truthfully, no, um, unless you can partner with ARUP from afar. And I, and I mentioned that I, I have several colleagues. I get called from many private practice providers that are in rural areas, and they'll send off their serologies and their diagnostic laboratories to ARUP. But for this particular study, it would have been difficult because it was a really close partnership. The samples had to be processed within two hours. And as you can imagine, in a pandemic, we're with limited staff. So when we started the study, I would see the patient for clinical care, and that was a patient that wanted to be seen face-to-face. They chose not to do a telehealth option because they were worried about disease progression. And their question to me was, do we need to increase my immunosuppression because I'm worried my lungs are worse or my skin is worse or my joints are worse or my muscles are inflamed? And so I would do the physical exam. I would note that they were on immunosuppression. I would tell them about the study and consent them properly, which really means making sure they understand all aspects of the study. And this is during a clinical visit, mind you. They then said that they would want to do the study. They would go to the lab where I would give them two red tops. The red tops would be obtained at the same time of their clinical labs. I then would be called by the lab. I'd run and pick up the labs. I'd put them on ice. I would drive them to ARUP so that they could be processed. And that, again, is during a pandemic, limited staff and just making sure we can do the the study properly. In a clinical setting, you couldn't do that level of investigative work. But of course, you know, from a diagnostic standpoint, certainly a community rheumatologist could send serologies to ARUP along with the diagnostic studies that are done. I do think there's a role for clinical research in rural settings, and we need to be inclusive with research and make sure we're having all aspects of society captured. But this particular study that we did would have been impossible if I wasn't so close to the laboratory. Yeah, sort of where I'm getting with this is one thing that I hope the general public learns from COVID when we're all through with this whole thing in a year or two is the value of academic medicine and academic medical centers. That's where I was trying to go with my question to you. It's just the fact that you work in this academic medical center where you're close to colleagues in different specialties and you can coordinate and you can brainstorm, but you can also do the logistics. You were talking about drawing the specimens and getting them to the lab quickly and just those kinds of details that you can do in this kind of a setting. 
And I would highlight too that I really love the collaborative. So I should say this project was a collaboration between neurology, mainly because they also were struggling with autoimmune diseases such as MS and NMO and really these diseases that patients were being isolated. And so I had conversation with my colleague, Stacey Clardy, where she was experiencing the exact same thing I was and trying to do a good job for your patient, but not really knowing how to best advise them. Also a partnership with Emily Spivak. She was doing on the inpatient care with the really sick COVID and we were communicating about immunosuppression. And then of course, Patricia Slav, who's working with the serologies and Dr. Peterson, who was working with the cytokine profiles. So this was a protocol that went back and forth between um, a lot of smart people that helped me put the project together. So I feel like I'm maybe just a spokesperson for, <laughs> for a lot of different great thought leaders in our community. And that is the value of academic medicine is the smartest protocol comes from lots of smart people looking at it and providing their feedback. I sometimes wonder what the world situation would be like if we didn't have a strong tradition of academic medicine, not just in the U.S., but globally. And I honestly think we'd be in really bad shape. You're absolutely right. And one of the things in that talk that I gave to patients, which I benefited from, I mentioned it at the end of the talk, was we really, as an academics medical center, had access to the academic medical centers in Spain and Italy and colleagues there that we're friends with, that we meet at academic meetings and that we know. And so we could ask questions. What's happening with your autoimmune disease patients? How are you treating them? In the same day, answers back and forth from great colleagues that you meet from these academic settings things that helped guide us in, in telling patients, okay, the experience in Spain thus far has been patients are not faring worse and that there are a certain number of patients hospitalized and they're being actively followed and, and they're doing okay. And that, that valuable information, which was not published and not available on a website, but was a friend of mine able to give me information that I knew I could trust was very helpful. So final question. How has this COVID-19 pandemic changed your thoughts, if any, about your, your career choice? I mean, to go into an academic medical subspecialty like rheumatology, does this pandemic cause you to reflect at all about your life trajectory and your career trajectory? That is a really great question. For a life trajectory, definitely not. I absolutely love my job. I love taking care of our patients. I think we make a difference and that gives my life great value. I often say to patients, I think a risk factor for scleroderma is being an incredibly nice person. I've never had a patient with this diagnosis that is anything but lovely. So I do love my job, but I'll tell you an interesting story. I had just put in a grant with the NIH looking at using telehealth for monitoring digital ulcers. My timing was somewhat horrible in the sense that my telehealth interstate license, I had spent much money and time and credentialing and put this through to get my license and it was supposed to be issued March 10th. And around that time, everything shut down and there was a very firm deadline, something had to be received or I had to restart the process and money and time and all this licensure stuff. And I thought my timing is horrible. I'm never going to get this digital ulcer telehealth project up because it required me receiving images from really um, around the world. We had put an interstate license where we could quantify whether the ulcer in that patient was infected. Because my theory was if we started treatment early, patients had excellent outcomes. And it was that loss of getting that evaluation that we lost critical, and this is days, critical time where we could really heal someone's finger. And in scleroderma, if you don't heal an ulcer, they can lose the finger. So I thought it was a very important project. 
So that happened and I couldn't do this telehealth and the project was not funded. And in the interim, of course, we moved everything to telehealth. And what I learned is telehealth and scleroderma is good for digital ulcers only. So what I, I learned is I couldn't do a skin exam. I couldn't do range of motion. I couldn't assess strength. I couldn't see swelling. And so I had to touch the patient. And so here we're moving to, oh, we should move everything to telehealth. It's great for social distancing. But in this particular disease, here I was like an early advocate and put in a grant. I had a license discussion to try to really move to a virtual clinic. And I lost a little bit of a flair for wanting to do a lot of telehealth. And I really shifted my thinking to there is such good value to touching a patient and doing a physical exam and listening to their heart and their lungs. And I will tell you the first week I was back up, I hospitalized, I think three patients, which is very rare. We don't do clinic to inpatient transfers because patients were sick and they need to see the doctor. So I, I think we need to maybe not always think, oh, telehealth is so much better or good for patient care. I think we really need to think through that and realize that there are aspects of medicine where patients really need to come to clinic. And that is from somebody who spent a lot of effort to get a telehealth license. <laughs> I think one of the themes of this pandemic has absolutely been really rapid, concentrated learning on, on these big ideas like telehealth. You know, what's it good for? What's it not good for? I think we're still learning on that. So anyway, Dr. Tracy Freck, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. It's been fascinating. Covered a lot of ground that you just can't cover without having that real frontline doctor perspective. And thank you for having me. And again, I, I'm so thankful to Erup for making so many of these projects possible and allowing us to take really good care of our patients. It's not possible without a good team. So, so thank you. Thank you for listening to the Lab Mind podcast, sponsored by ARUP Laboratories. ARUP is a not-for-profit enterprise of the University of Utah and its Department of Pathology. You can find more LabMind podcasts at arup.utah.edu or subscribe to LabMind using iTunes or your favorite podcast app.